Hey guys. Hey. Hey Sean. Let's hey, let's <laughs> let's loosen up a bit. Highs and lows of the week of or the, week? the year. Of not of the year. <laughs> I don't have I don't have the energy to do the year. Um God, you're really putting us on the spot here. Wait. What? That's <laughs> my high. What are you talking about? Uh, let's see. My high um, was a relatively low-key night float night last night. And uh, I learned a lot about one of my um, co-residents. Uh, we asked her a number of questions, and she is extremely interesting. So it was very fun. I love that. It was that. a good way to spend time. Oh my god! That was both personal and mysterious. <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> when I think Ben Jones, um, what about you, Rachel? Any highs? Um, I actually, I'm in clinic this week, and I just had some really great patient interactions. Um, some really good deep conversations. Um, I had a few patients cancel, typical resident clinic, but it allowed me. <laughs> to spend extra time that I don't always get uh, to spend with my patients. So cheesy, but it was very fulfilling. That's amazing. It's nice to have more time with the patients. I miss ECG rounds. That's my high for the week. Oh. oh. You, you missed? That's your high? No, no, I had missed them. Oh, oh you, you had missed them. I'll rephrase. You have them. Okay. okay. I'm glad ECG rounds are back in my life. <laughs> some fascicular VT, some pacemaker-mediated tachycardia. It's all oh. good stuff. Pacemaker maker mediated tachycardia. Very yeah, man. cool. Pretty That's rad. Great. Mind blown. Wide complex tachycardia. <laughs> Did you see Robbie Jiha's tweet today? No. What no. was it? It was T Wave Alternance. Oh no Ooh. way. I was the first to comment. Wildly incorrect, but very interesting. <laughs> Wildly incorrect. I think I said it looked like Yamaguchi's, which it did, <laughs> I think. But what do I know? Like Yamaguchi's as in what we played with when we were in elementary school? Yeah, it school? looked like a small child's toy. <laughs> Correct. Okay, cool. uh, Rachel, I think that's Tamagotchi. <laughs> <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. All right. Well, I am giving uh, the, or I'm leading the trial today. Is that how I should say it? Yeah. Okay. But we should intro the podcast first. Oh. Do I Would you like to do it? I don't, I feel like you're very... This is the MedLit Review. We are here to discuss interesting articles in the medical literature and go through them in a case-based format with friends and fellow co-residents. My name is Sean Dickdan, and I'm here with my co-host, Ben. Ben Jones, how are you doing? Doing fine. And Rachel Redfield. Hello. How, how are you guys doing? Do you want to give... Uh, I realize that I thoroughly neglected to intro you on the last episode, mm -hmm. which is pretty poor form. It's fine. Can I... <laughs> The passive aggression is is burning my face. Uh, ben, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So uh, in the fashion of another popular medicine podcast, I am a 29-year-old, a uh, third-year internal medicine resident um, who is interested in endocrinology, medical education, and quality improvement. Uh, my full name is Robert Benson Jones Jr., but I go by my middle name, Ben. Um, Hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, outside of work, I love board games and chilling with my friends. Wow, that was great. We love chilling with you too. <laughs> um, my name is Rachel Redfield. I always feel weird saying my name. Is that is that 
Why? I don't know what it is. Do you know my maybe name? It's, maybe it's the alliteration that really throws me off. Be proud. Yeah. Be proud. <laughs> it's a you nice should be of your name. Yeah. No, great. I get compliments all the time on my name. Um, and people also tell me I look like their friends because I'm an average white girl. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard today Ooh. that you sound like Emma Stone. I yes, people have told me that a lot. Should I? My my jaw hit the floor <laughs> for those who aren't in the room. <laughs> Should I go back and reintroduce this whole podcast and just say Ben and I are doing a medical literature podcast <laughs> with Emma Stone? <laughs> that would be amazing. Little did everyone know she's very interested in the medical literature. <laughs> that and dancing and <laughs> singing. Well, well, yeah, singing. Ryan Gosling. Yes, <laughs> I am also interested in all those things. We basically just introduced me. Um, but yeah, I am interested in gastroenterology, hepatology primarily. I love women's health and, um, mental health. So hopefully we'll touch on some of those topics, but tonight is not that night. (laughs) I think we definitely will touch Mm -hmm. on some of those topics eventually. What, what kind of night is tonight? Tonight is a night that we put ourselves in the ICU. Oh boy. (laughs) Amazing. Endocrinologist's favorite place. Yeah, you know. <laughs> is it thyroid storm? Is it myxedema coma? I really wish it was, but it is not. Um, so, speaking of ICU, let's take ourselves out of the ICU. Wait, we just came to the ICU. I know. We were in the ICU, but now we're going outside the ICU. Okay. So, right. phew. <laughs> we'll, we'll be back soon. So, we've all responded to that code blue, which... Um, causes us to go into asystole. Um, but what is y'all's experience with code blues in the hospital? Are they typically, um, shockable, not shockable? What have you guys seen? That's a good question. I would say, um, like 25, 75 shockable to non-shockable. Um, if I had to put a percentage on it, um, I'm Obviously, that's a that's a wild guess, but no, I think that's actually very accurate. Sean, what about you? Yeah, I think in my anecdotal experience, it's been mostly non-shockable rhythms, unfortunately, because the patients we're seeing in the hospital are typically admitted for a while and have a lot of medical comorbidities, and it's not something that's just VTAC or VFib. Yeah, uh, unfortunately. So I totally agree with you guys. I think in the hospital. Uh, most of our patients are either asystolic or have PEA arrests. Um, and then obviously all of them end up in the ICU, neuro ICU or CCU if there's no room in the ICU. Um, so uh, I wanted to present an article uh, that came out actually this month uh, called the Hyperion Trial. Ooh, oh, interesting. Yes. So for you guys, both of you have been in the ICU. I am currently in the ICU. Yes, you are. Excellent. Hopefully you're not. Well, I guess, does our CCU do? Oh, you betcha. Really? You betcha. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I, I guess I haven't been in the CCU since intern year, but. This could not be more topical for me. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> you're welcome. And you can quote the Hyperion trial tomorrow. On rounds. <laughs> yes, Impress on rounds. some people. Exactly. Mm, well, the Hyperion we'll trial. slap you across the face <laughs> if you dare. So the Hyperion trial is a trial based on um, targeted temperature management in cardiac arrest. So from y'all's experience, oops, I said y'all. I love you saying y'all. That's great. It's it's some character. It's a much more descriptive pronoun. (laughs) We didn't do. You all all. We didn't do backgrounds, actually. Backgrounds of the trial? No, of ourselves. Oh. 
Oh, oh, that I'm where I'm from. Well, I'm let's like, let's let's leave some mystery like Ben. <laughs> okay, you can just guess where I'm from. Perfect. Um, so from uh, y'all's experience, who in our ICUs tend to get cooled? So <laughs> they had a cardiac arrest. <laughs> yeah. Good start. Hopefully, hopefully we're start. not um, cooling just the random. Yeah. You look like you need to be cool. <laughs> cool me. You're febrile. We're going to cool you this down. This person is on fire. <laughs> Channeling Alicia Keys right now. <laughs> this girl is on. Okay, no. Thank you. Why Thank did you. I do that? Oh, that was amazing. That was a missed um, opportunity for so, Sean. And I think they probably have to be in a certain age range. Uh, also, I don't know. Okay. Um. Gosh, that's really all I got. Okay. I, like there's okay, I cardiac arrest yeah. and certain age. Yeah, I think there's, you, a, there's a difference. I don't know the trials that this is based off of. Yeah, actually, you don't have to. But I'm I tell you. Thank God for this podcast. <laughs> I think it's there have been some mixed data. I've been told there's some mixed data, and in PEA arrest or uh, asystolic arrest, there's uh, either no benefit or maybe a detriment to getting cooled. And so we try to not do it in those populations. And we do, uh, do it in patients who have an arrest from presumed pulseless VTAC or VFib. Uh, and I think there's some other contraindications. So you can't have a coagulopathy because I think the targeted temperature management will worsen the coagulopathy. Um, and I'm sure there's some other reasons not to do it that are not coming to mind. So yeah, yeah, you guys are, um, exactly right. Uh, you know, I've never paid close attention to who were cooling and who were not cooling, if I'm being honest. But I usually let neurology kind of make that decision for us. Um, but as of right now, I think the standard practice is that patients who have cardiac arrest from VFib, VTAC, pulseless VTAC, are cooled um, unless they have some contraindications like Sean, you mentioned. Do you guys, um, and, and I'm asking this because I honestly don't remember. I haven't been in the ICU in a while. Do you guys know what we cool to typically? Oh, that's such a good question. I think it was 90 degrees. I want to say 90 degrees. Yeah, I want to say it's in Celsius because it was, these trials were done like internationally mm-hmm. and, you know, we're like the only people that use Fahrenheit, <laughs> but I have no, I don't know the number. Yeah. I can, I can try to figure it out the way that I usually do conversions in my home. <laughs> Alexa, what's 90 degrees Fahrenheit in Celsius? <laughs> All right. Okay. 32.2 degrees we'll Celsius. See. It sounds like a reasonable, like we could probably round up. Um, to like 33. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that I honestly don't know. I would have to go ask our poem fellows what we do, but mm-hmm. I think I've heard the numbers 33 and 36 thrown around. Interesting. Okay. Um, and, but I, I honestly never, I, we just put in the order and our nurses take care of it. So, um, my goal the next time I'm in the ICU is to be a little bit more, observant Mm. of um, what we're actually doing. But this all stems from a few trials, but the one I'm going to talk about today is one that actually came out pretty recently called the Hyperion trial. And it is, so it's titled Targeted Temperature Management for Cardiac Arrest Arrest with dun 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 non-shockable rhythms so essentially amazing (laughs) essentially they were um trying to see if there's any benefit and interestingly they used uh 33 degrees celsius um as their target which 
is fairly controversial because uh, they did a there was a, a trial before this called I'm going to get it in a second the basically what people call the TTM trial the targeted te- temperature management trial that compared 33 degrees Celsius to 36 degrees Celsius and it showed no difference um, in benefits. So interesting that they picked 33 definitely takes a lot more work, uh, to get patients, uh, at 33 degrees Celsius and to maintain that. But regardless, that is what this trial chose. And this was done. Um, it's a, uh, multi-centered open label, randomized control trial in, uh, different hospitals in France. So we've moved from Denmark, and Denmark, I was thinking, say, where do they speak Dutch? <laughs> Oh is that god, did we learn that I, we didn't i think it was denmark oh my god this is to, embarrassing to, to france france Frances. francais oui <laughs> je t'aime um okay so what do you guys think why do you guys think this is even important like why do we even care yeah so i was thinking about like why do we do temperature uh, management in the first place and my understanding is that if we slow the metabolism down by cooling the body then brain tissue doesn't need as much oxygen and and general tissue period doesn't need as much oxygen so we can like in theory blunt some of the uh, damage from lack of perfusion of the brain does that is that actually correct I don't know if that's correct, but it sounded amazing. And if my attending had told that to me, I would l- listen to it blindly and then relay it to my medical students because I have a similar framework in my head. I, I justify it as, you know, do we know exactly why uh, it, it helps? Uh, you know, I'm not sure, but it makes a lot of sense to think that after a cardiac arrest, there's, you know, tissue has been oxygen deprived. There's probably a lot of inflammation, diffuse inflammation and, um, you know, in my mind, I can rationalize that allowing that inflammation to go unchecked could worsen our prognosis, could could make those tissues that are all, have already suffered some episode of hypoxia recover more poorly. Yeah, I think that was exactly my understanding prior to reading this trial, and I think that still holds true. When they compared the 33 degrees Celsius to the 36 degrees Celsius, they were essentially trying to see if we could do 36 degrees Celsius instead um, because like we mentioned before, there are risks to doing, uh, keeping patients hypothermia. So it kind of brings me into the people excluded in this trial. Okay. So the people that were excluded in this trial um, were, they looked at timing of the cardiac arrest. So let's say no one witnessed this patient down. um, And so you couldn't be confident that there, what they call is no flow time more less than 10 minutes so if someone was down with no cardiac resuscitation for more than 10 minutes you were excluded from this trial so obviously those people we can presume are very sick people other things they did were cardiac arrest the actual cardiac resuscitation couldn't be longer than 60 minutes they call that low flow time and then there's you know they wanted the age to be greater than 18 they got rid of patients who have child c uh, cirrhosis, so you know, very sick patients, um, and a, a few other things that aren't quite as important. Um, and they they did want all the patients to be screened for this trial within five hours. Any questions about that? No, I think um, I think it's worth saying that the um, 
the treatment effects could be blunted if you included those people who were in low flow state and um, the um, no resuscitation within 10 minutes. So that's probably part of the reason why they excluded them. Because, you know, if, if we say like, oh, these people did worse, it was like, well, they were going to do worse. Exactly. So we need to see if it works in a better group. Yeah. So they got rid of uh, actually a fairly good amount of people. Um, let me find the exact numbers. Okay. So they assessed about almost 3,000 patients, a little bit less. Uh, and they only randomized 584 patients. Wow. So mm. about a fourth of the patients they excluded. Or sorry, sorry, three-fourths of the patients they excluded Yeah. Um, for those various reasons. The primary endpoint for this trial was actually neurological outcome for these patients who had undergone cardiac arrest. They used a screening uh, tool called the Cerebral Performance Category. They had one psychologist call all these people 90 days later and assess how they were doing and essentially on a scale of one, which is like mild cognitive deficits to five, which is death. Um, they were interested in how many of the patients were in category one or two. So mild to slight moderate neurological performance. Wait, what? <laughs> the primary outcome was at 90 days, a psychologist would call the patient yes. who'd had who'd survived a cardiac arrest mm -hmm. and had targeted temperature management mm -hmm. and ask them some questions and see what their neurocognitive testing showed over the phone i just the mm -hmm. the idea of calling like a, a five person and, and just hearing like static on the end of the line <laughs> is what came to mind which is like so insensitive um but <laughs> this is a lot of work for that psychologist yes i know That's right so much i know they use one psychologist was it a med student or no no, no a psychologist a <laughs> i know right so i actually really liked that endpoint. i thought it was different you know we're used to seeing a lot of trials that are interested in mortality which is of course important and that was a secondary endpoint for them but I really liked that they were trying to make it clinically relevant. Like, do these patients not only survive, but do they thrive? I like that. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so any questions so far that you guys have? Nothing yet. Okay, so just to review um, how the, exactly they did this. Um, from what I can tell, you know, they kind of let the different... Uh, hospital systems use their own hypothermia protocol, but they were randomized to either 33 degrees or 37 degrees. Um, so they were comparing, and, and just for um, all the Americans out there, uh, 33 degrees is 91.4 degrees Fahrenheit. 37 degrees is 98.6. And 38 degrees is 100.4, so with a fever. That's very helpful. I know. I really, I, I had to look this up. All right. Let's get to everyone's favorite part of Journal Club, which is the methods. <laughs> <laughs> I typically skip straight to the methods and don't read anything else. <laughs> oh, yeah. Else. I'm sure you do. So they basically, you know, 
split people in half randomly and decided you're either going to be cool to 33 degrees for 24 hours or you are going to be kind of cool to 37 degrees, which again, 98.6, which I'm just going to say is normal. So either you're really cold or you're at pretty normal temperature. And that, that was for 24 hours, both groups. So after that first 24 hours, then the hypothermia group, the 33 degrees, was then slowly rewarmed. And this happened over about 12 hours because you don't want to get rebound um, hyperthermia. And then the normothermia group just stayed at their target temperature for another 24 hours. So technically, the people who were cool to 33 degrees were actually maintain at a certain temperature for a little bit longer. Um, so that's just something to note. In my mind, it wasn't a huge difference, um, but still slightly difference between the group. Um, and essentially, I mean, that was pretty much it. What I thought was kind of interesting and a, another variable among the different centers is that there's actually multiple different ways to cool people. Who knew? So I'm used to seeing these, like, these blue pads on our patients, they're essentially it's dry water immersion that's non-invasive. They're just gel pads over about 40% of the body. And that's uh, a good way, or I think it's a good way of keeping patients cool. But there's other ways to do it. People have like cooling blankets. Some places, you know, you just throw a bunch of ice all over their body and I mean, Did I you say throw a bunch of ice all over their body. Yes, that's how some people cool buckets. Yes, well, I mean, I'm sure that they like oh, put them in bags, but <laughs> yeah, that is a real thing. Uh, so at uh, the institution where I did medical school, there was actually it was a water bath that yeah. you would uh, dunk them in. They would be protected with like a thin plastic layer. Like the it, the bath would be around them. They would be in like this plastic kind of wow. body form thing that so they wouldn't be directly exposed to the water but it was very similar like it it, it was like you dunked basically the whole body it was oh, wow. pretty amazing that is so interesting yeah. i can't imagine like being the nurse to saran wrap the patient yeah this was they actually just like laid them in a plastic sort of molding almost. Oh, okay. it wasn't like and it wasn't like body form fitting it was just like you know standard size and yeah pretty very wild interesting so so, so I imagine that the people who are using ice or, you know, a water bath or something, I, I imagine it's probably be a little bit hard to control them exactly at 33 degrees Celsius. Um, so, you know, just a side comment. And then the goal was to keep patients sedated and each of the uh, different hospitals use their own protocol for sedation um, and they didn't in the the primary article didn't go into detail about all the different ways that they kept patients sedated but the goal was a RAS score of negative five which makes sense you don't want people awake for this so one other thing about the patient population that I think is important is that 27 ish percent of these patients that they used were in hospital cardiac arrests the rest were out of hospital cardiac arrests okay interesting I, yeah and and honestly they don't really um and maybe it's in the supplemental but as far as i saw did not really split those up later to see if there was um, any difference between those two but i think it's important to note because i imagine that in hospital cardiac arrests would be more successful that's just my intuition i don't know if that's validated in any way one other 
important thing of the patient population, which I thought was interesting, is the cause of cardiac arrest. Two-thirds were non-cardiac and one-third was cardiac. And I was like, what does that like actually mean? But in their table one, they list out the different causes of cardiac arrest. So uh, I, I guess anything with the heart is they're just categorizing. So the ones that two-thirds non-cardiac was asphyxia, anaphylaxis, a neurological cause, PE, other medical cause, very mysterious. How should you include other medical causes on a know. list of medical I guess, causes? I guess you could, if that was like acidosis, um, drug poisoning, drowning, I, that, I thought that one was interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then everything else, they just put cardiac cause. Okay. So, interesting. Yeah, so I cardiac was almost a rule out once you... It wasn't a rule out. It was just, they basically looked at all the almost 600 patients and said like, so why of these people, like why did they have cardiac arrest? Okay. But again, they didn't break that down in the results at all. I just thought it was interesting. With all that in mind, what do you think a representative case would be? Okay. So picture this. You're a resident at Lit University Hospital and uh, over the speakerphone, you hear code blue to the 17th floor. We have a very large hospital. You respond, and a nurse there tells you that they were in the room uh, taking care of a patient who was hospitalized for diabetic ketoacidosis when all of a sudden the patient became unresponsive. They checked a pulse, and there was nothing. So the patient had cardiac chest compressions fairly quickly. The code blue, you do such a great job. The code blue lasts for about 20 minutes, and now it's time for the patient to go to the ICU. You get to the ICU to give your amazing, thorough handoff to the ICU residents. And you want to give some tips for what they should do there. So sum- so summarizing, this patient had a PEA arrest? PEA arrest. On the floor. Yes. You achieved ROSC. Okay, I didn't say that. That's PEA okay. Arrest. I said it for you. Thank they you. had a PEA arrest. <laughs> well, I'm summarizing. <laughs> I am interpreting as one should. Uh, PEA arrest on the floor. We achieve ROSC, the patient is intubated, sedated, mm-hmm. transferred to the intensive care unit to resume transition care to a post-cardiac arrest mm-hmm. um, stage of their care. Okay. Interesting. Yep. And importantly, the patient's GCS score is less than eight. Okay. That is low. sedation. Yes. Very low. I recall from medical school, the mnemonic less than eight intubate. Yes. Yeah. That's yes. all I know. Exactly. I don't really. I don't typically use the GCS in my everyday. I don't either, but I know eight is bad. Eight, eight does sound bad. So let's talk about the outcomes. So the big take-home points, um, like I had mentioned before, the, pri- the the main primary outcome that they were looking at was the neurologic function of these patients. So um, of the 584 patients. They wanted to know who had a CPC score, the Cerebral Performance Category score, of a 1 or a 2. And of the patients who got the hypothermia protocol, 10% had a CPC score of 1 or 2. So did fairly well. And compared to the normothermia patients who had 5.7% of those patients had CPC score of 1 or 2. So that's a difference of 4.5%, the 95 with a 95 uh, confidence interval of 0.1 to 8.9. So you know it doesn't cross zero, but it's it's 
That's it's pretty, pretty darn, darn close. close. <laughs> um, so, you know, they said it was uh, significant, and, and it is. Can, wait, can I clarify? Mm-hmm. So if you got the targeted temperature management, 10% of them had this lower score. Yes. Oh, but one or two is score. better. Yes. Exactly. Because five is dead. Yes. I now understand. That was great clarification. Thank, Thank you, you for that. Sorry, I shouldn't say five is dead. What was five? Dead. Yes, oh, five was dead. Was dead. <laughs> oh, good. See, I remember things. Literal death. Yeah. <laughs> when talking about the results, I actually think the most important figure to look at if you're if you happen to read this trial is figure two. The reason why it's important is they basically graph out on a time scale, so hours starting from zero to like sixty-four, what the actual temperatures were of the patients. And, you know, obviously they're split up at the beginning. So people all started at, let's say, 30, almost 36 degrees Celsius. People were cooled down. Half of the group was cooled down to about 33. And then half were maintained around 37. And again, one thing that I had to keep reminding myself is that the whole point of this is actually not really about the temperature, but really about preventing fevers. So looking at the graph, at first glance, I was like, okay, you know, both, both of the, you know, they, they managed to do that. But actually, a lot of the patients who were in the 37 degree group had fevers. And I thought that was interesting. And then even as they were starting to rewarm some of the 33 degree patients, they also had fevers. So I, you know, I, from the breakdown, I can't tell like how many of these patients had fevers or not, but I thought that was kind of interesting that again, my understanding is the whole point should be, or we think is not to have fevers. And yet both groups actually had significant fevers. So I don't know if this messes with things at the end. Um, Do you know if one group had more fevers than the other? From looking at just this graph, it honestly appears that once they get to the 32nd hour, it almost seems like both groups have about the same amount of fevers. And this is just with my eyeballing the graph. Sure. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting. And so this, again, is above 38 degrees Celsius, which is 100.4. And some of them go up to 39 degrees Celsius, which I didn't write down, so I have no idea what that means. But 39 degrees Celsius is pretty high. Yeah. Sounds high. Mm -hmm. Said a bunch of Americans. (laughs) One other point I wanted to make was about the psychologist. I think both of you guys found the fact that it was one psychologist, not med student, who had to call all 580-something patients. It's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a task. Um, but I, I feel like they were doing that to prevent, you know, what would it be called? Inter... Inter-rater differences. Yeah, so I, I originally thought that was a positive thing, but I looked more into just what is this cerebral performance category that they're basing all of this on. And there's a pretty good, like most tests, pretty substantial inner rater variability. So I think if they would have, from some of the th- things I read, if one patient would have had one different outcome it wouldn't there wouldn't have been a significant difference wasn't it not significant as it was it is significant it is, as significant, it is. but yeah. just barely significant just barely I see. yeah I remember. It's 0.1 to 8.9 okay so just barely significant gotcha um 
so yeah, I thought that was interesting. But overall, I liked the study. Again, my only questions are that I would be so curious to ask is, you know, why do they pick 33? Why do they pick 37? Is that just because 33 compared to 36 was already done? Why didn't they choose 36 degrees for non-shockable rhythm patients compared to just not uh, temperature target temperature management? Um, but overall, I, I learned a lot. How about you guys? Anyone want to summarize? Oh, yeah. This is really interesting. So my takeaway is that this is it's already been proven in the literature that using targeted temperature management on a patient who has a shockable rhythm does have some neurocognitive benefit yes. after the fact. Uh, but it hasn't been proven in this patient population. It exactly. hasn't been proven in the patient population with non-shockable rhythms. So this is good. This is another intervention to improve post-cardiac arrest outcomes. I think just some other follow-up questions I have, and this might not have been within the purview of the study, is are there any big downsides or adverse events to initiating targeted temperature management to make me hesitant besides the, you know, the, the classic things? Like I brought up coagulopathy is the thing that always comes to my mind um, and the other exclusion criteria. And then, you know, again, not within the purview of this, is, is, is there a mortality benefit? Um, is there something, some benefit that we might see after 90 days? What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I mean, I think the um, the confidence interval gives me a little bit of pause that it's so close to crossing zero and the significance is is pretty close. Um, I, I don't know a lot about the cerebral performance category in terms of how it corresponds to um, functional status and all those things, but that would be, I'd, I'd have to look into that index a little bit more to sort of say, is this truly a, a meaningful effect size to make me want to change my practice? But I, I mean, this is, this is the first step saying that like, yeah, it, it worked barely. Um, and we, uh, you know, as, as most studies do, it's, we just need a larger sample and a little bit more, uh, diverse patient population and, um, uh, just getting a little bit more data would be helpful. Yeah. Thanks. To answer your question, Sean, about risks, from the risks I could pick up from just kind of glancing through some of the other uh, other articles that were done before uh, Hyperion trial, the hypothermia is known to suppress immune function. So bacterial infections tend to be more common in these patients. I think uh, particularly pneumonia, they found this in a, a, the Kuchena article that was written in 2014. Um, so up to like 50% of patients uh, who were cool to 33 degrees had pneumonia. Other thing is uh, torsades uh, that people can get. Right. So um, I think, you know, when the, the other trial I mentioned, the targeted temperature management trial, when they compared 33 to 36 and they found no difference, the decision was made, I think, among the community that 36 would be, be the better choice. It's a lot harder to get patients that cool. But again, the goal is to keep patients at 36 and not to get fevers or rebound fevers. And it seems like from the Hyperion trial that they didn't, they weren't quite able to do this once patients got up to that 37 degrees. It was just too close to 38 degrees. Um and I don't think they were successful in that. Um, the other thing with the 33 degrees that 
uh, some of the other studies have looked at, they actually use the SOFA score um, to see um, like kind of organ fa- failure. And they did find that at 33 degrees, there was m- people were more likely to have a higher SOFA score. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, mm. that's really good. So back to our patients. Um, if, you know, we're on the 17th floor, we're rolling them to our fifth floor ICU, you know, would we suggest after this to cool this patient to 33 degrees? What do you guys think? Non-cardiac arrest. Yeah. I mean, in the absence of some of those things you mentioned, so in the absence of, you know, them being at increased risk for a cardiac arrhythmia, them being at increased risk for a bacterial infection, uh, I might, I might recommend it based on this trial. Uh, you know, it's really about weighing the risks and the benefits and, you know, in, in a cardiac arrest, uh, you know, the, the big risk is, is you're worried about progno- neuroprognostication after the fact. And if this is a potential benefit with not a lot of downsides, you know, I think it'd be hard to pass this up. Yeah. What do you think, Ben? Yeah. I, um, it's, I'm, uh, kind of a wait and see type more than, um, more than Sean, I guess. Um, I'd like to see a little bit more, uh, a larger study, a little bit more of um, significant outcomes, um, perhaps relying on multiple um, raters of the CPC score um, to actually sort of correct for any biases in the uh, single psychologist's um, interpretation of the response. But yeah, I think it's it's certainly promising therapy for now, but I would like to see a little bit more before saying that we go ahead and uh, cool our patient. Rachel, any big limitations besides having one psychologist call a bunch of people? Some of the limitations that bothered me were that, I mean, there were 25 ICUs that were used Mm. and all with varying protocols, but I imagine that causes some issues. But yeah, I think I would definitely be really interested in another trial that does this exact same thing, but with actual success of preventing fevers, um, but using it again with patients who have non-shockable rhythm. Cool. This is so great. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Rachel. That was awesome. (laughs) Yeah. None of us here are going into Palm Crit, but... Always good to expand your horizons. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. Yay. Thanks. This has been the MedLit Review, brought to you by Drs. Rachel Redfield, Dr. Robert Ben Jones, and Dr. Sean Dickdan. We hope you had a good time and learned something about an interesting journal article. I wanted to give a quick shout out to some of the people whom, uh, without them, this podcast would not be possible. Was whom the right word for that? I have no idea. Uh, I automatically default to whom because it makes people think that I'm smarter. I want to thank people. um, He or him? who, Who? It's who. I'm a ding dong. Without whom, without whom, this podcast would not be possible. I want to thank people without <laughs> whom this podcast would not be possible. Aaron Miller, one of the terrific medical students I worked with who does all of our art and helps us do some promoting. Ryan Dickdan, my brother, we have the same last name, who has helped me with the podcast equipment going forward. Uh, and a quick shout out to the uh, Thomas Jefferson University Hospital internal medicine chiefs who gave us a bit of money to uh, cover offset some of our costs. So a special thank you to them. Thank you, you guys, for listening and tuning in. Please like, comment, subscribe. It helps us so much as we're trying to grow the podcast, get some more support, build things from the ground up. We appreciate you guys so much. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Please give us some Friday feedback. It's lit. It's lit. Let's go. Okay. Thanks, everyone.
hey guys, thanks for listening. But just a friendly reminder that um, the what we talk about on this podcast is not actual medical advice. It's just our own opinions and interpretations of these articles. If you're in the medical community or not in the medical community, please re- rely on the experts um, to make opinions and um, enjoy reading these articles yourself and interpreting them how you see best. Thanks. That was, that was incredible. I guess the next thing I'll touch base on... Is that button supposed to be red? Where? That's the power button. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I just hadn't seen it before, and I was like, oh my god, red button. <laughs>